0: Welcome to the Smart Talk series, the Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in December of 2020. Our talk is hosted by Ed Dodson, who is joined by our guest, Dr. Francis Chu. Dr. Chu received her bachelor's degree from Smith College, her master's from Northwestern, and her PhD from Oxford University, all in English. Dr. Chu is a critic of contemporary politics and philosophy, but not through the traditional means. Her unique perspective instead comes from a literary point of view. Her research is conducted on how reform politics is represented in literature from the 18th to 20th century. Her most recent project on Thomas Paine has received national recognition as she currently teaches the only class on Paine's philosophy. Dr. Chu has contributed to many articles, books, and other publications, her most recent being the Rutledge Guidebook to Paine's Rights of Man. She is currently a professor at the New School where she focuses on gender and identity, history, and political science. In her teachings of Thomas Paine, Dr. Chu often revisits his old ideas with new perspectives. I urge you to focus on her concept of what Paine thought of as small or limited government, which was much more anti-elitist than most conservative schools of thought. I urge you to consider how this idea of anti-elite small government intertwines with modern conservatism and how modern conservative rhetoric revolves around the idea of limited government. Together, we discussed the founding fathers ideas of how to build a constitutional democracy, how personal versus national interests conflicted in the drafting of the Constitution, and how power originally became concentrated within elite circles. We hope you enjoy this talk and please just make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode.
1: Thank you very much, Ed.
2: Well, it's great for us to finally get together. This has been long in the planning, and uh, you gave me a great opportunity to to read through your new book and to come up with some what I hope are some insightful observations and questions for you. Before we get into a discussion about your new book, I'm interested to learn when you first became interested in in Thomas Paine as an historical figure.
1: Well, actually, I sort of got through it through the back door, because I was very interested in uh, William Blake. You know, I was pers- interested in pursuing a doctor on his poetry. And so I was going to read everything that William Blake had ever Rick. and one of them happened to be pain. And interestingly, at that time, I had to I really wasn't too enthusiastic about getting into pain because, like I, you know, I thought, well, Ronald Reagan liked him, and Come I wasn't. On. I didn't identify as a conservative. <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't too keen on getting into pain at that moment. But I read him, and I read. I first read, I think, *The Age of Reason*, and then after that, um, *Rights of Man*. And I was just blown away. I was Like, wow, this stuff is, you know. This was around 1994, and I thought we weren't really talking quite as much about inequality then as we do now, but a lot of the issues I thought were quite similar and were p- quite pertinent, so I got interested in him at that time. And as it turned out, I wound up writing on uh, 18th century gothic novel rather than William Blake because someone had just written a dissertation on it. So anyway, after having gone through that, um, a friend of mine sent me a DVD of... Um, Payne's works, his collected works, and some of his earlier biographies, like, you know, by um, Cleo Rickson, and, of course, Monture Conway. And I was reading the Monture Conway, and I thought to myself, oh, come on, no one is that idealist. No one is that perfect. Mm -hmm. So I turned to John Keane's biography, and I read that from beginning to end, and I was just, again, I was just completely blown away, because I didn't know, I had no idea that pain fought in the army, the Continental Army. I mean, he was one of the soldiers. I had no idea that he walked from Trenton to Philly in December when it was freezing cold. but so that was just, that who else did that, you know, at that time? I that was, and,
2: uh, and all of so the time he was writing the crisis papers.
1: Yes, exactly. Yes. And I mean, the fact that he was able to, you know, get Everyone's attention to do it. And then not only that, but I think he gave away his rights for that, right? I mean, like he, you know, he used all that money to contribute to the Continental mm-hmm. Army, you know, mittens and looks like $500, which is, you know, it's a sizable sum back then. And, you know, then of course there was that whole Silas D flap in which he was kicked into the gutter and everything. And I thought, you know, he really sacrificed so much of himself for this country. And very few people really know about that. I think, I mean, that's like he's—he's he's not regarded as a one quote unquote, you know, real founding father like George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or Hamilton or any of those others. But, and I thought, you know, he really deserves so much more attention. And, you know, when I got to the book, I actually cried because I thought, oh, this is so sad that he was totally ignored. There was like, very little respect for him. And then, of course, there's this whole, you know, the whole flap over the bones when when William Cobbett went to pick them up. So it was really—it was. I thought to myself, I've got to go teach a course on Thomas Paine. And that's how it started. So I, was, I think I taught probably the first course on Thomas Paine in the context of this period.
2: Well, let me ask you a second question then. In, in, what do you think is most important for people today to understand about Paine and his relevance to what is happening in the world today?
1: You know, it, this it, that's an excellent question, Ed. I think that one of the reasons why we're having the kinds of problems that we've been having, I think for the last, at least, you know, 40 years, but especially the last, I think 12 since that uh, financial crisis. I mean, I think that there's been a lot. And the reason why we're having these problems is really because I think we've ignored Payne's words, at least here in America. And I think safe to say in many parts of the world, I mean, when you think about, you know, the Arab spring, this was a reaction to the fact that very few people around the world actually, I mean, especially in that part in the Middle East, actually felt represented. They felt like the elites were still dominating everyone unfairly. And it was interesting to see that we have a similar, I mean, comparable problems. That's why I think that we had Occupy Wall Street come so soon, I mean, emerge so soon right after uh, the Arab Spring. So a lot of these issues, I think, are still happening today. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why Payne is so relevant, um, you know. Well, I think he would, it would probably be absolutely true that he would because, be- you know, oh, we God. don't have a hereditary, sorry, go on. We I was don't just have a hereditary, say- hereditary government. And yet we still have so many of the same problems that Payne talked about then. And I think it's because of the fact that we've, you know, we really degenerated into an oligarchy. And this is actually all the things that the the founding fathers were warning about in a way. So Uh that's why I think it's, it's as relevant as ever.
2: The times that tried men's souls have never really ended.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, you've sort of hinted on this already, but uh, when you mentioned Ronald Reagan quoting Thomas Paine, it, you know, it conservatives began to pay some attention to Paine and his emphasis on liberty um
1: mm-hmm. yes
2: i i wonder you know do you think even s- since then has pain increasingly been misrepresented by political figures on both sides of the aisle by both on the left and the right Yeah, you know, they they quote him from time to time but it seems to me that they're 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 so doing so selectively to support their ideological positions
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. exactly I would say that what's really ironic is that the, uh, the right tends to quote him actually, I think, more than the left does. I rarely ever see the left do. I mean, I think I must be the only person doing that myself, but the right, let's see, we're starting with like, you know, as he said, Ronald Reagan and then Glenn Beck. And it comes in this uh, fundamental misunderstanding of I think what small government meant back in Payne's days. Or today, a misrepresentation. Yeah. You know, the problem is that back then, um, small government was really an re- it's really a reaction against elitism and the aristocracy. Because their complaint back, at least in 18th century Britain, was that the government was bloated. It was, you know, you had the king with all of his influence on the legislature, you know the houses of parliament, and then they had all those pensioners, uh, and then all these. Um, you know, younger aristocratic sons who took up, you know, positions. I mean, positions were actually created for them so they wouldn't starve. And so it was considered like bloated government. And the fact that these are the people who were running the country, they were the ones who were imposing the taxes. So it was seen as big government back then. I mean, elitist government was seen as that such, I mean, back then. And the interesting thing is in America, what was going on was that they actually wanted bigger government. Because if you remember the anti-federalist reaction to the Constitution of 1787, many of them... Actually, you know, Hamilton and Madison, Alexander Hamilton and uh, James Madison did not want to make them too responsive to people. I mean, they were afraid of populism. They were genuinely, and they, they thought that they would probably go and upset the whole landed order. lead to no longer have the kind of power they had. So they actually, you know, in some ways, they were very, very elitist in their, in their own turn. And so the anti-federalists who opposed it wanted more representatives and they figured that would be more representative of the people and they wanted more who came from say lower lower and middle class backgrounds they complained that it would, there were too many people from you know the top they didn't say that's this way the top one percent but the wealthiest men you know the biggest landowners. so they were afraid of that they actually wanted a bigger government you know to put it that way so it, it, what we're talking about today is just completely different because what they want what reagan wants what you know The rest of the right ones face no control on the corporations or Wall Street. They're really looking for, you know, less fear for the rest, for for them. So that's why it's completely different. I mean, small government is completely different from small government today.
2: It brings to mind the argument that was made uh, in a book written by Peter Drucker back in 1944, The Future of Industrial Man. I don't know if you're Mm -hmm. familiar with that work. No, I'm not. Well, in that, he really argues that the American Revolution was a was really a conservative counter-revolution. It to, was. To reestablish the system, uh, the state of salutary neglect that Charles Andrews wrote about in his book on the revolution. And he got away from them because once the fighting started and once somebody like Tom Paine shows up, uh, you know, starts to bring up much more broader demand for rights uh, for the individuals and question the whole basis for the system of government that they plan to put into place. Mm-hmm. I think well, you know,
1: Yep. And the interesting thing is that there was actually quite widespread opposition to the drafting of the Constitution back there in the back in the 1780s. And in fact, they thought it was that, um, you know, Hamilton and Hamilton and Madison were just as bad if not even worse yeah. than the British mm-hmm. and Thomas Jefferson was also very surprised by you know by the whole procedure of the you know of drafting the constitution because they were all I mean first of all they were very very self-selected I mean it's completely I mean the account of their you know drafting is very different from the way that Payne presents in the rights of man chapter I mean part two chapter four I mean it was very close it was very. Um, Sealed in, they wanted to avoid something like Shay's Rebellion. Of um, I think it was just a little earlier than that. They didn't want any populist uprisings. They didn't want um, creditors to not get their share of money. They didn't want people to be paying back, you know, their loans with produce or anything. I mean, they wanted. So I mean, they they wanted something that was much more, um, I guess, formal. And so. Yes, Hamilton and Jefferson, I mean Hamilton and, uh, sorry, Madison were much more elitist than the rest.
2: I I would hope, uh, I would offer our our listeners when they eventually hear this um, a a suggestion to really get an understanding of the issues that were in play that they should get a hold of Charles Beard's book, An Economic Interpretation of the U.S. Constitution, uh, Mm -hmm. because he really does provide the details. Now, I know it's been controversial since it was first written. I think it was his dissertation back in about 1912. Uh-huh. But, uh, but, you know, but you know, people have been arguing over whether or not the individuals who were at the Constitutional Convention did vote their own self-interest, or did they vote the nas- na- national interest, the common interest? And I don't know if it's it's ever going to be fully resolved, but I think Beard made a very strong case that supports exactly what you
1: just said. Well, Michael Klarman has recently, I think, written about that too, and he does make a very good case. I mean, many of these people are just—they, I mean, the elites are very afraid of populist rebellions, like you know, Shay's um, Shay's Rebellion. And actually, it's interesting because. Um, in one of the Federalist Papers, I think it's Madison who writes about, you know, what happens if these, you know, of these um, middle and lower income, uh, lower orders want to rise, I mean, what if they get resentful about extreme wealth and it's going to upset all of our government and everything. So it, it, it is very, very, I mean it is very elitist. And so I'm not really sure. I mean, I, I do wonder if Payne knew anything about it. I mean, I kind of doubted just because he was, uh, at that time that they were drafting it, he was on his way over to France, his
2: rights
1: that was bridged. So he may not have heard everything about it, but it is, it's fascinating to read that account of it and to see how different it is from the way that Payne presents it in The Rights of Man.
2: Did, did the context of everything that was going on at the time, and as we've been discussing so far, did that have a major influence on your decision to actually go back and and go through Brights of Man again and write the book that you did, providing all this context and historical background?
1: Well, you know, I was already very interested in the, like the late 1760s and 70s and 80s in Britain when there were... Just beginning to get into like parliamentary reform, you know, have universal uh, universal male suffrage. Actually, something we were even talking about, you know, getting women to vote, but that was sort of pushed aside. But anyway, I was interested in this whole reform movement, and then when there this new awareness of women's rights, you know, the abolition of slavery, so I was very very interested in that. And I think it was like the recent, um, you know, the recent past, like say between twenty. Okay, since so I think I was reading this. John Keane spoke around in 2004, but I noticed that there have been so much, you know, just written on inequality since then. At least in the, especially after the financial crisis, right. and that so that got me even more interested. And in fact, what was fascinating was that. um I was writing this book just right when Bernie Sanders was running for president and I couldn't help but notice how so many of the issues that he was talking about you know talking about you know we got to expand social security um there are too many elderly people walk, you know working to their 70s and 80s and he's talking about too many young men being incarcerated uh, you know, we need a higher minimum wage, all of these ideas, and I thought, you know, it's fascinating how it is so similar to what Payne was advocating, and what's interesting around this time, too, is that, like, um, I think back around when I was the first teaching this course around 2007 to 2010, I would ask students, you know, okay, who comes closest to Thomas Payne today? So I, will, I would always ask them towards the end of the, you know, end of the semester. And they would say, you know, there's really no one who is advocating the same ideas. And then when Bernie Sanders started running, they would just immediately say, oh, he's just like Bernie Sanders. So, so it is kind of interesting that you have this sort of, um, you know, this, these sorts of reflections.
2: Yeah. And, and uh, you know, as, as I don't know if I've ever told you this or not, but my my first real attraction to pain came when I was a high school student. I had a really great history teacher and I was always very interested in the period of, of the colonial period and the American revolution. And I think I drove him crazy with questions. And, <laughs> and he finally pointed me to pain and he said, you need to go read rights of man, you know, read common sense, but, but also read rights of man. Mm-hmm. And, and after I did that, uh, I just, uh, could never really I could never shake the power of what Pain wrote, and even today, whenever I read you know the words of the first crisis paper, you know these are the times that try men 's souls. I get shivers uh, so, yes so it always pain has was stayed with me for all those years, but as as you, you were talking about your your exchange with your students. Uh, When I first encountered Henry George's writings, the connection was immediate. I, you know, I often in my own teaching, uh, when I talk about pain and Henry George, I I put it in this way, I say, you know, the torch of liberty fell to the ground and and nearly burned out until Henry George came along to pick it up again. There was no one with the same, you know, passion uh, for, for justice and liberty independent of his own, the consequences to his own well-being. That s- seemed to me what Henry George brought, you know, that, that Pain had uh, held. And I, and in between, there's no figure that I've encountered that had the same sort of uh, moral compass working for for them.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I found very impressive about Payne, I think, the first time around when I was writing my uh, doctoral dissertation was the fact that, I, you know, I, I went through Age of Reason, the Rights of Man, and then Common Sense. And then I read the articles that he had inserted into the Pennsylvania magazine. Yeah. And at that time, I thought they were written by him. And I was like, wow, he's writing about women's rights, and he's writing about slavery, and he's writing about, you know, aristocratic titles. I mean, the fact, this is just completely amazing that he's, you know, that he's writing all these things, you know, much earlier than that. I mean, that he's, you know, he's addressing them earlier than these other writers. Um,
2: but under a pen yeah,
1: It was, excuse me?
2: Under a, under a pseudonym, under a pen name, he I yeah. don't think he, he didn't sign those articles.
1: Right, absolutely like the 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 article about women was actually written by a uh, a French man, I think back in 1749 or something around there. Mm-hmm. And the articles on slavery, I guess, are still being contested. But the fact that he wants to include them in the Pennsylvania Magazine, I think, says quite a lot. As you know, same for that um the article on women as well. Just I thought, you know, he must be he must have been very progressive for his time to be writing about this. And he was also criticizing um, the, you know, the the British colonies as well, too. I think those are written by Payne when he's, you know, criticizing Clive, uh, Sir Robert Clive, Alexander the Great. So I thought, you know, it's amazing that he's writing about all of this stuff. And of course, um, he wasn't exactly unique in writing about this because there were other writers before him, like, you know, people like um, James Murray, um, he was a Newcastle activist and Presbyterian um, preacher, and uh, let's see, there's a Caleb Evans around that time. They're all Granville Sharp and Major John Cartwright. Both of these were writing about actually expanding manhood suffrage, and um, Sharp was interested in um, abolishing slavery at that time. So, I mean, they were all they're already writing about rights, I think. But I think it is pain that really has the power to just sort of put it all together.
2: Yeah, it kind of leads me to the next question. You've started to mention some of the other uh, potential influences on Paine's own thinking. And in the book, you write extensively about major and minor figures whose writings and actions slowly but inevitably changed and challenged conventional wisdoms and the status quo of hierarchy and power in societies. And Paine... Certainly stood on their shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, a big a big difference between Paine and Henry George. Uh, Henry George was a scholar. He had an extensive accumulated library of the writings of of everyone, at least who who wrote in English or whose works were translated into English. But there's no evidence that Paine accumulated a library at all. And yet he was able to embrace. Uh, teachings. and I I wonder, in your research, uh, have you encountered the source of his inspirations? Was it the the pubs? Was it newspapers? You know, what do you think was the main source of of his learning about what others were saying in writing?
1: That's a really great question. I would say that, you know, back then, the the copyright restrictions are very, very loose. So the newspapers would just print like lots and lots and lots of excerpts from these popular works. And in some cases, like for instance, um, John Cartwright had actually written on American, I mean, advocating American uh, independence, although in a federalist uh, context that, that, you know, he wanted to have America is still attached to Britain, but only loosely. So he was already writing about the idea of American independence in 1774 before Penn, before Payne came along. But I would say, okay, so there's a lot, there's um, The newspapers are probably influenced. In some cases, we do know that Paine had actually read, like, say, um, James Burg's Political Dis, uh, Disquisitions. This was a huge, um, it was a huge hit back in the early 1770s, I mean, if you were a reformer, you read that book, and he mentions that as well, too. And he certainly read um, Sir John Sinclair, and I can never really get the title of his book and it's so general, but it's like the history of the public revenues of the British Empire. And this is like the great the 1780s, and he we know we think he read Adams. I mean, like, and I should add too, like, you know, many of these cases, we don't even know exactly if he read these things from you know beginning to end, or if he just read these excerpts in the newspapers, or if he just really heard about it. You know, it's 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 kind of hard to tell. Um, one thing I would say though is that you know there's this whole history of accumulation, and what what fascinated me was how. So many of his ideas seem to be similar to the diggers, I mean to the, sorry, the levelers and diggers. The levelers are the ones who are writing about, you know, expanding manhood suffrage. This is back in the 1640s. And they were talking about religious rights, um, especially for Protestant centers. They were talking about free trade and
0: Am I correct? The
1: they were... Political and civil rights. And then the Diggers were writing about economic justice, like that everyone should be provided for. He um, was... This big, Gerard Wood Stanley was the one who came up with this whole idea of sort of a utopia for the time. Like, um, You would have a community where everyone would have stuff in the storehouses and they would all share. There would be no quote unquote buying and selling and there would be an end to wars. And what's fascinating about these levelers and diggers, I mean, it, seemed, it may seem irrelevant right now, but many of these people became Quakers. And as we know, pain came from a Quaker family. And you wonder how much of it, it actually absorbed because um, both the levelers and especially the diggers are very interested in the idea, I mean, in the idea of alleviating poverty. And paying himself. I said the same thing that you know the Quakers are very good at addressing poverty. So I do wonder if he inherited a lot of this thinking, this leveler um, digger thinking,
2: from the Quakers. There's some controversy there because the Quakers became uh, pretty adept at business uh, strategies and, and accumulation of personal wealth in North America, and mm-hmm. you know I have I have friends and colleagues who whose families are, you know, have Quaker origin, and we have this discussion as well. I mean, they, they, they do believe in peace, but, but many of them engaged in all sorts of uh, speculations in order to build their personal wealth. And then mm-hmm. Payne writes Agrarian Justice, which, you know, from a, a Quaker position, I, I wonder uh, if many Quakers would read Agrarian Justice and say, um, this is this is consistent with Quaker principles. I don't, I, I wonder about
1: that. <laughs> that's a, yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I mean, I think that was Payne put it and that could have been his interpretation as well mm-hmm. too that the Quakers were interested in providing for the poor. But I should also mention too, that many of these ideas on alleviating poverty that Payne discusses in uh, the Rights of Man, part two, chapter five, were actually also being discussed at that time. Like for instance, Adam Smith, um, Adam Smith, and I think uh, John Sinclair both talked about how the rich were basically, you know, shoving all the tax burdens on the rest of everyone else. And I think William um, Ogilvy wrote about this as well. So these are not unknown issues. I mean, Payne was not the first to address these issues. And then there was another one who was writing about uh, poverty in the 1770s. I think his name is John Scott. And he talked about how the, the means of addressing poverty were so... Uh, inconsistent in Britain at that time, because you would have some areas that were very, very generous and others which were not. So he said, there's gotta be a more nationalized scheme. And then you had a William Ogilvie, and I think it is Sinclair too, who were writing about means of providing for the elderly. I think Sinclair had written about how, you know, when you have the taxes, the taxes ought to go to provide for, you know, The elderly, and this is so. It's it's it's, almost it's close to social security. And he's writing about this in the 1780s, And you know, Payne does mention his name in the books. I I think he may have read Sinclair. He mentions him several times. And um, I have a question. Who was saying that you know land should be taxed? And Mm -hmm. it's really it's fascinating because I mean, I wonder if William Hogarth had you know read any of the sorry the physiocrats that you were talking about and Turgot. so it is sort of like pain takes many of these ideas and recombines them, and I think that's what makes them radical. Another
2: another question comes to mind, and I don't remember in reading your book whether you covered this at all, but it concerns the nature and the impact of Magna Carta. Uh, A a colleague that I interviewed on this program some time ago, Fred Harrison, is a British uh, author, and economist, and he has argued that Magna Carta uh, really destroyed the uh, reciprocal relationship that there that had existed between the the king and the people, and what what it really did was to give the land barons a lot more political power and power to begin. Um, uh, moving the basis for public revenue from the land onto uh, individual enterprise, onto commerce, onto everything else. And he and Fred Harrison has done an analysis to show how the percentage of revenue from land fell over time, beginning with the adoption of Magna Carta. And I don't know if, (laughs) I don't remember if Payne writes specifically about this um, or and made made that same sort of analysis. And I wonder, did you mention anything about Magna Carta in the book?
1: You know, uh, with the Magna Carta, it, you know, Payne's main uh, I think ideas on them are basically that they didn't really do much. And he thought that um, it was what Tyler, and the peasants revolt of thirteen eighty one, that he had really accomplished far more right. for the common people but i think amongst like say british constitutional scholars many of them will say that actually the Magna Carta was important because it you know it set up a rule for behavior for you know everyone from the beggars to the kings that you know they're all they were all supposed to obey these laws it was no longer like you know the law of the king right. so they put it in that context but um I'm not sure that they, had, they, that they had said, I mean, any of them had really paid attention to the idea of this, of land. I know, though, that Payne does talk about how taxes on land have gotten, you know, less and less through the centuries. And it is kind of confusing because I think in the past, uh, at least say in the 15th and 16th, 17th centuries, many times um, the wealthy were expected to give compulsory loans to the I mean to the king so it wasn't like they were getting waste got free I mean they were paying something but in the 18th century I think their share of the taxes kept going down as you know they kept uh, I mean first of all one thing was that um uh, land was very much undervalued and I think this is true from the late 17th century they purposely kept the taxes down on the land and they kept adding things like say like you know Basic necessities like you know, uh, putting the taxes on, you know, candles. Yeah. So all you know, all the all the basic necessities. So yeah. this is what Payne was talking about.
2: Yeah, and just as a current observation uh, across the United States in particular, but in, but in many countries, back probably most countries, uh, land is very much underassessed, um, mm-hmm. and that is that from a perspective that Henry George would share, that is a serious problem. And where it is accurately assessed, it does produce a lot of beneficial economic outcomes for for communities. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about pain and his involvement with the French Revolution. Um, I I wonder is it if do you think it's a fair criticism of pain that he failed to fully see what was coming when he responded to Burke and he first you know drafted Rights of Man. He had a pretty optimistic view that the revolution that had uh, overthrown British rule in North America was going to spread. It was going to spread to the old world. And uh, I, my, my sense is that he didn't fully understand that the conditions that existed in North America were so much different, uh, that mm-hmm. people had lived under this period of salutary neglect. They had 150 years to develop the idea of self-governance. Right.
1: Well, one thing is that in America at that time, I mean, you had, they were pretty much self governing, but they had also adopted more or less like the British Constitution, you know, on a, on a more local scale. So they had that going for them. And I think, though, the, the problem with pain and um, America, I mean, one, on, one, on one hand, it is understandable just because many of the, the, the French, I mean, the leading Frenchmen were saying that the French Revolution was influenced by the American Revolution. So I think Paine got into, I mean, Paine really took that, you know, um, he took that for basic truth. But I think one of the problems that he had was that he really did not understand, I think the real problems of French. He didn't realize how desperate it was. Because if you read his Rights of land, he doesn't talk at all about the conditions, um, you know, that were born by people like, he doesn't talk about the higher taxes, he doesn't talk about, um, the high prices of food—it's like these things, these problems, like don't exist at all. Um, he had no idea that Marie Antoinette was h- as hated as she was. So I think that he really missed out on um, what was really going on back then. And like for instance, like he, he talks about Jacques Necker, and I guess he had read—you know—he at least read parts of uh, his book on finances in France. And of course, that book was not very accurate because he did not—he uh, did not really address the fact of France nearly bankrupt after the French, I mean, after, sorry, after the American Revolution. So I think that Payne's problem was that he just, I, I, he just really did not see what was happening in France. I mean, he didn't realize how yeah. severe the problems were.
2: That raises a question in my mind about his relationship with Benjamin Franklin, because Franklin has written, you know, pretty specifically about how um, desperate the, the conditions were for the average person you know, when he was in France, uh, and he toured Ireland, and uh, he, he wrote a lot about that. And, you know, as I often think of Franklin as, a, as the main mentor of Paine, you know, I, I, so it kind of is surprising that Paine wouldn't have been as sensitive to these issues uh, because, because of the conversations he might, he probably had with, with Franklin, certainly, uh, you know, perhaps Jefferson as well it's a little yeah. it's a little surprising to me
1: yeah it's, it's also really interesting that um, Jefferson was much 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 more critical of King Louis Sixteenth. I mean he thought that you know his execution was a good thing and but anyway um, I think with pain, it's like maybe it's the people that he hung out with that that can make a difference because you know he really just hung out with the aristocrats like you know Lafayette. Uh, and people like Jefferson, so I think that he didn't get sort of the view of what was going on in the streets, so to speak. I mean, that's my impression. Okay,
2: of yeah, well, it's something for if if uh, further research maybe uh, in France or, or other would uncover some of his his day to day activities and what he you know, what he encountered. Um, I I wonder in Rights of Man, uh, Pain addresses. And to use your words, uh, general brevity, what followers of Henry George have argued is the most pressing issue of all, and that's the land question. Yet he later came to write in Agrarian Justice, pretty much an indictment of a system of, of rentier privilege condemned by Kene and, and Turgot and uh, even uh, DuPont. And I, I wonder if you have any insight into the evolution of his thinking on these issues based on the research that you've done.
1: No, that's a good. um, That's that's a really insightful question. I would say that actually, in many ways, Haynes' ideas were actually probably more radical in Rights of Man than in Agrarian Justice, because in um, Rights of Man, he's talking about taxing direct income. Whereas in Agrarian Justice, it's really more about you know the death duties. So I think in that sense, he was probably more radical in Rights of Man. but it's really, I mean, I think his suggestions are fascinating because you know, he's talking about at one point, like charging 99% of, um, I think the 23000 was like the top income. I'm not sure what that was. That would have been equivalent to like, say, billions today. I mean, you know, super, I mean, superb wealth. So, and I think he's one of the few who's actually writing about this. I mean, there was—I mean—to really address it so directly. I mean, because you do—you did have um, Adam Smith saying that the you know, the wealthy could pay more, and then I think there was one German visitor who was saying that about the same thing that the real, the wealthy are not being taxed enough. And you know, Payne is saying—I mean—I think one of his more radical statements is that um, you know. Taxing luxuries, like, say, wigs, um, carriages, that doesn't do any good. We got to go tax at the base. And and I think the radical idea here, too, is the fact that he's saying that we shouldn't have direct, I mean, like, direct uh, inheritance. I mean, direct inheritance should not be taxed as little as it is and it should be more broadly dis- I mean like the, the wealth should be more broadly distributed just like say you know farther relations and I think that would that would have cut down taxes significantly for those kinds of people this is at least what Payne is talking about in Brightsman. and Lands. so I think he's really the first one to be addressing it so directly
2: and also then adding a social welfare scheme to what the revenue would be used for as opposed to right for wars and and more territorial acquisition, uh, you know, aggression, that kind of thing.
1: Right, right. And because John, actually it's funny because John Sinclair also, I think Sinclair and both, uh, both Sinclair and Smith talked about how this whole uh, colonization was not, I mean, we're we're draining the resources. And the thing is, as as we've learned later on, um, actually that did expand the world of Britain. But at that time, Sinclair um, Smith and Payne were all saying that colonization was a waste of money yeah. it was a waste of resources and actually what's also really fascinating there I think too is how Payne comes with this sort of idea for NATO or, or a NATO-like organization that you know he was saying that um, America, France, and Britain should just get rid of their individual armies and have a very small base and they should all pull the resources together. I think he's really the only one who's saying that 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 was a completely new idea on his part. At least it seems like he's so far from what I've read. Do you think he would have
2: thought it would be better in North America if the uh, individual colonies that have have obtained uh, independence would have remained sovereign nation states? Uh, Or do you think that, you know, I understand the, the potential threat for England to come back and, and invade the colonies mm-hmm. required that they have a union, some sort of defensive union, but given his political philosophy uh, and his fear of, of uh, aggrandizement of power, you know, uh, did he, and I don't remember reading anything on this subject, which is why I'm asking you, did he make any argument that, um, that, the 13 original colonies nation becoming nation-states should remain more independent, uh, remain under the articles as opposed to- So the,
1: actually- Yeah, actually, he wanted, them, he wanted them to be more closely knit. And that's what he was actually very much pro-Constitution at that time. He said that, you know, the band among them is too loosely, but it's, like, it's like a um, belt that's too loosely, you know, um, too loosely made, and so he wanted the colonies to actually to be banded together. But what is fascinating at this time, too, is that um, you know, Payne is talking, he's, he's comparing Britain and um, America, and he's saying that you know, the British expenses of the military are so high and everything. And actually, at that time, um, British expenses on British military expenses were about average for the rest of Europe, I mean, it wasn't especially high, but compared to America it was because I mean they had that, that many more centuries and at that time uh, America really didn't have a navy they didn't really have anything until the you know uh, until that Barbary um, Pirates incident I think it was in 1796 somewhere around I can't remember exactly when but I think in the 1790s and that's that's when really they started to build up the military and it's also fascinating that um you know at this time Payne is making the assumption that if you have commerce, there will be less wars. I mean, because it, wars would be you know, harmful to commerce. And yet you have people like, I think, Hamilton Maness, or especially Hamilton, who's aware that actually a lot of these wars are caused by commerce and by trade.
2: That's, a, that's a, certainly a complex uh, economic and political discussion. Uh, Henry George argued that you know, in favor of free trade for the exact same reason that, that you attribute to Payne, that you know, when people are trading with one another, they're going to be less inclined to go to war with one another. And, right. and, and Payne is the defender of you know, the same kind of argument that, that Go made uh, regarding free trade. But you describe his position as, and I quote it, an egalitarian view of trade. So would you explain what you mean by, by that term, that phrase?
1: Well, I think at that time, you know, capitalism was still in its very, very early stages, and I think Payne really did have an idea that I think he thought of commerce perhaps more as barter because he, you get this impression when reading writes a man that he thinks that everyone's gonna be making about the same amount and you know of money from trade, which is obviously not true at all. And I think at that time they didn't have. Um, I think the problems of free trade were just actually beginning to emerge because there was something with the French silk industry, the 1780s, um, they were being outsold by the British were able to sell for cheaper. And Payne did not know about this. Anyway, though, so, I mean, the problems of, associated with free trade were just beginning to emerge at this time. And that's like, like when you have uh, in this 1820s, when you have like some like, I think Thomas Hodgkins, who's writing. Uh, against Capon, saying that, you know, Payne was just very unaware of the problems of free trade. You know, it, it really was because it had just only started when, you know, Payne was writing. So, I mean, that's basically how I see it, that he didn't really, he didn't understand um, all the problems that would come with free trade. They were they were only just beginning to come out around the 1780s.
2: It's also de- dependent on what is meant by free trade. I mean, even Adam Smith argued that we need rules, and government is there to enforce the rules. So, if you allow monopoly privilege to to you know grow, you're basically not you're not engaging in free trade. You may engage in trade without government intervention, but that's not going to result in uh, win-win relationships between the partners, the parties that are, that are involved. And I, I know this is, this is a really important part of the, the times, whether or not the world is going to move toward uh, free trade and peaceful evolution, or the European nations are going to uh, continue on their path of territory acquisition and building military industrial empires. And you bring up a very a really important point is where are they going to get the money to pay for this and already after the French uh, helped the Americans in the American Revolution against the advice of turgot, France is basically uh, its treasury is empty britain 's treasury is nearly empty as well, and so it 's a real issue of where they 're going to get the the funding to keep on uh, Attempting to expand their territorial acquisitions, and, um, and I, I, I wonder if Payne, you know, saw the financial collapse as as consistent with the old world empire building.
1: So, yeah, you know, with um, the French, you know, okay, one problem with the French was the fact that their finances were actually in much worse shape than the British um they didn't really have a way of of collecting taxes like you know on um on you know consistently and the British did charge higher um you know taxes especially through the excise and that's really one of the reasons why they were able to you know avoid bankruptcy and that is also how they I guess eventually were able to build the empire I mean because they had these taxes to keep everything going and so anyway um I think Payne probably did not understand the difference between the French and you know the British finances. I think that was part of the problem, perhaps. But he is writing about how navies are going to be, you know, the trading sources. But the thing is, they were the ones who bring the trade to Britain as well. too. That's how they were able to make, you know, enough to expand an empire in the 19th century. And he didn't, but he didn't see he, neither he nor Sinclair or Smith saw that that way.
2: Well, we had to have a, 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 an insight that. Almost no one else, you know, possessed in order to to, to know what was coming, and it's easy to easy to for us to judge him on in that sense. But but certainly, you know, his everything that he wrote in Rights of Man and and afterward that was not specifically devoted to his rigid religious beliefs seems in the in the realm of of progressiveness of of a constant moving of society toward that goal of equality of opportunity that Henry George would later embrace. And I, th- and I think Payne needs to be recognized for that. And hopefully those, uh, those on the left today would begin to really focus on Payne's contributions along those lines.
1: Yeah. I don't know why the left has tended to avoid writing about pain. I mean, I find it really fascinating. I mean that pain has already been I mean, pain has uh, I think most been monopolized by the right. And so it is it was interesting. I was reading one comment in this libertarian site, and they're like, wait a minute, pain is actually more socialist than libertarian. I thought, yeah, exactly. And I have no idea why and how that happened. I think it could be the fact that maybe many liberals or people on the left are reluctant to draw upon the founding fathers. I mean, they think that there's something inherently conservative about, you know, drawing upon tradition. But, you know, they really should draw upon someone like Payne. And I think what is really fascinating about him, I mean, I think in like in today's context is the fact that, again, as I was saying, you know, we don't have a hereditary monarchy or or a government feel I mean, like we have no aristocracy. And yet what's also fascinating is that, you know, we do have things like political aristocracy, I mean, political families, like you know, the, the Bushes, the Clintons, Kennedys. And we do have this system of like, you know, say the universities accepting, um, you know, children of alums. So it's really fascinating that I think we've still incorporated so much of what Payne considered wrong in 18th century Britain. Or the fact that, you know, look, look at the fact that our, you know, our state taxes are so low. I mean, what would pay make of that, you know, and the fact that, uh, and then of course, there's the fact that we have, we spend much more in the military, I think more than the, the 13 countries below us. So you I mean, would have a lot to say about that.
2: <laughs> yeah, cer- certainly, uh, you know, the, the discussion of where we are against where we began, even with the the original intent discussions of the U.S. Constitution um, seems to be a discussion that has very limited uh, basis in what the, frame, the framers uh, expected the future to be, because they, they left the door open for, you know, for changes in the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and pain, uh, you know, was was, in my view, offering a whole list of potential changes in that basic, you know, frame of God, government that would improve the life of people. Now, one of uh, one of the writers on pain that I really read and embraced uh, what he had to say was Mortimer Adler. In the book Common Sense of Politics, he talks about you know pain extensively, and I think one of Adler's contributions that comes out of pain <clears throat> excuse me, is Adler says that what too many people demand or want or ask for is freedom. And what they really should ask for and want is liberty. And he defines liberty as freedom constrained by justice. And our mm-hmm. problem is, even if we agree with that, we cannot reach a consensus over what justice is.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: and for that, I think Rights of Man and others, other writings of Pain gives us a really good um, benchmark or guidepost, whatever you'd want to say, about how, what we ought to be looking to to pursue. And, right. And for that, for that um, you know, we, des- we, we really have to uh, thank Thomas Paine for what he left to
1: us. Yes. Um, you know what's uh, what I also found very, um, you know, striking is that, you know, Thomas Jefferson. I mean, even you know, we tend to think of him being, you know, moneyed, wealthy, and everything, but he was very much a supporter of the French Revolution, as we know. And he writes about the fact. I mean, he's. I think there's a letter he's got with um, John, that he writes to John Adams, either him or I think at Madison about the fact that we need to avoid the dangers of, you know. Great inequality and everyone should have a little plot of land. And he was saying that America was much more equal than Britain. And actually, that was, by the way, that was true. I think that there are some moderate economists who have said that. America was much more egalitarian and there was more social mobility in this in the colonial age than there was, you know, in Europe at that time. So I think, in a sense, Payne is drawing upon this, but um, he really does go, I think, much further than because, like, you know, towards the end of his life, you have, say, you know, Jefferson sort of distancing himself from pain. I guess pain probably was too radical, but I mean, he, you know, Payne actually made you know, radical in, I think, the U.S. and in Britain until at least through much of the late 19th century. And I've always personally wondered if, um, you know, all the animus about the age of reason was really not an indirect um, commentary on the the rights of man. I mean, maybe that was the word that they actually feared more than um, the age of reason, because, I mean, rights of man really met was a very, very, I mean, notorious, I mean, it had a notorious reputation in the 18th century. I mean, they were, all the critics, many of the critics were frightened. I mean, even the more quote-unquote liberal Whigs were frightened by its invocations. And it's interesting to read the reactions to it. And notice how in some ways they're very similar to the kinds of reactions that people have to like liberals and progressives today. Like I mean, they were saying, well, Payne advocates, you know, higher wages. I mean, like, you know, like he, just, he doesn't call it unionizing or collective bargaining, because, you know, how can we pay that? And then if you give these elderly people uh, more assistance, or, or if you give the poor more assistance, aren't they going to become lazy and not want to work at all? So, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to see how so many of those ideas then are being echoed by conservatives today.
2: Well, in the United States in particular, the discussion about um, how to raise the level of those at the bottom up almost always focuses on education Mm -hmm. and, you know, pain embraced universal childhood education. uh, um, And you refer to this in in your book as a well-governed nation. In other words, if if the universal education is consistent with the needs of a well-governed nation, certainly you need the population to understand the functions of government. Uh, And yet here in the United States, Today, I would wonder how many high school students have more than a brief introduction to government and to civics, and what this does to as a threat to the kind of of democratic republic that Payne you know conceived of
1: mm. I think with Payne actually you know. <clears throat> At that time, the idea of universal education was already very daring. I mean, have, uh, there was someone writing in the 1820s saying that, you know, oh, knowledge, I mean, uh, education is quite dangerous. I mean, the lower classes might become dissatisfied with their situation. And that was really the common idea yeah. back in the 18th and 19th century that, you know, that they would learn and become dissatisfied just like pain. And a lot of times you do wonder if they were try- they were alluding to, you know, pain but um, so he doesn't but he doesn't really say what should be learned I think because it was back then it was just so loose um, one of the writers of poverty was you know writing about how the poor should be educated in the bible and how girls should learn how to knit and sew and boys should be doing gardening or wheat I can't remember exactly which but um, it's very very limited and Payne doesn't talk about that, but he, he does say that, I, I I mean, we get the impression that he is uh, implying that they need a higher standard of education, like, you know, at least learning math, at least learning how to read. And he was, like I think, a writing teacher, wasn't he? A a, um, a reading and writing teacher in, mm. I think, London, right between his excise stints in the 17th, yeah. late 60s.
2: I think an all-girls school, he taught uh, English uh, for yeah, a year he was thinking, or
1: so. Start, he was interested in starting one, I think, in the U.S. and he never did in the colonies. And he never did that.
2: But, as, but at the same they, time, at the same time, he's a scientist and he, he experiments. I mean, the reason he went back to Europe was to sell his bridge design, right? And it, you know, again, that's in the same spirit as Benjamin Franklin, who started these these uh, clubs in Philadelphia, the Junto uh, clubs, to to expand the no- practical knowledge to people. Um, and yet there's Franklin and Paine, both very committed to understanding moral philosophy and, you know, political ideas as well. Um, so, it, yeah, yeah, but I appreciate the comment you, you made. that's really important. I think it even applies today that uh, to educate people too, th- too thoroughly gives them a sense of what, how they're being mis, mistreated and abused mm-hmm. and, and now you give them a, an expectation of for change and then then the political leadership has to live up to that to responding to that expectation.
1: Yeah you know I was I was just thinking about huh I wonder if Payne does write about what people should be learning politically and he doesn't really I think it, it's not really spelled out in any of his works but I mean he just but he does try to instill a basic awareness and um you know, knowing conditions around you. I think that's, you know, and that's, you know, by the way, I just wanted to comment too that, you know, I was saying earlier that like in, um, when he was writing with Francis he, he says nothing about the material conditions, nothing about the poverty, nothing about the wages. And this contrasts with with what he's writing about. And, you know, in Britain. I mean, that's very, very specific. We're saying that, you know, these families should get so much and uh, and this, so much should be spent on education, on upkeep. So, I mean, you can say, There's like a huge difference between the way he writes about Britain and France. And this was, again, as I was saying, he just didn't know about the material conditions of France. And this, it-
2: well, before we get too close to the end of our conversation, uh, I do want to make sure I give you an opportunity to, to tell the listeners where they can acquire your new book. Anyway,
1: the book is available through Amazon, of course, and um, you can also get through the Taylor and Francis site. I think it may be easier to get through, um, you know, Amazon, but then again, there's, you know, Barnes and Noble and there's, you know, a lot of other places that you can get it. I
2: have recently completed a review of Francis's book that will appear in the next issue of Thomas Paine's, Thomas Paine Friends Bulletin, Uh, and uh, anyone who really has a, as an interest in pain and, and helping to, to bring his ideas to the widest audience possible, I would ask you to take a look at our website at thomaspainfriends.org, and maybe even consider becoming a member. Um, so Francis, let me give you the last few minutes in our conversation to sort of give me as a, a, a summary and and uh, and of. What do you think will be the future that will occur with regard to pain studies? I know we there's one college we know, Iona College, that has a minor in Thomas Paine Studies. Do you see that, that there's a, a growing interest among uh, the academic world in teaching pain and relying on his 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 uh, writings as source documents?
1: I think there should be just because there's this new interest in the founding fathers and i mean i really do hope that he gets as much attention as someone like um, you know like alexander hamilton um, i've been talking about myself about just how i would love to be able to go and make a movie about pain slap because something that deserves to be you know thrown up on the big screen or even something like say like the hbo series on john adams i think it was fun right. series and actually pain's pain slap pain, would fit perfectly into that sort of per, into those parameters I mean but there really should be I think more attention paid to pain and I wonder too if, it's, if there hasn't been that much just because he's still seen he's still regarded as a quote-unquote dangerous writer by some um uh, I think it was sir, sir David Attenborough Richard Attenborough who tried I mean the one who the one who did the movie on Gandhi he had written one he had also written the screenplay on um on Thomas Paine and he could not get anyone to sponsor it. All. Mm. So I don't know. I mean, I hope that there is more attention paid to Paine. Um, I mean, I certainly try to plug in whenever, like there's a, a Bernie Sanders discussion with any kind of progressive. I was like, you've got to read Paine because, and I, my point is always that, you know, Bernie Sanders is right. None of these ideas are radical. These have been around since 1792, when you know, Payne was writing about it. And I think that's why it's so important to get back to Payne to know that to know what the potential is, and that he was writing about it at this time about care for you know the poor, the elderly, public education, you know, keeping people out of jail. Um, Only thing is, you sort of wonder why he didn't write about, um, say, slavery or women's rights, although I do think it's probably because of the fact he, he did say that um, he wasn't really directly acquainted with slavery, even though he was very much against it. And I think with women's rights, it could have been the fact that he was friends with the, the quote unquote first feminist Mary Will Stonecraft and he maybe didn't want to tread on her territory, so to speak. So that could, that could be why he doesn't address these issues. But I mean, yes, he was very, very modern for I mean, it's I mean, it's again, I mean, I think it speaks volumes that you have someone like Bernie Sanders, who's making so many of the same points in our context today that, you know, he is. And by the way, it's worth pointing out to, I think, um, you heard of the French writer, the French economist uh, Thomas Piketty? It's P-I-K-E-T-T-Y.
2: P-T-T-Y, right. Yeah, yeah.
1: He is making a lot. I mean, he was talking about how we've descended into this sort of like frontier economy. And that it's very much similar to what Payne was living in, you know, I mean, back basically like a you know late 18th through actually through the 20, uh, early 20th century, and he writes a lot about the fact that we need to get away from this frontier economy. Um, and I I always wondered too if this is really one of the reasons why America has been so obsessed with frontier type um, art, like you know Pride and Prejudice. Uh, downton abbey and etc we're still we're still obsessed with this um, period where the 1% or the actually the 0.01% had enormous political power and it's interesting that we're actually living that right now
2: yeah well it's it's always been interesting to me that the british people continue to support the existence of a mon- monarchy and a and a system of aristocratic privilege you know if if any people in the world should have a full understanding of the consequences the impact on on a democracy uh that that these centuries old you know, privileges have it should be the people of of the united kingdom but
1: oh, uh, sorry go on, sorry
2: I was just going to say but 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 that carries over to Americans. Americans seem to have a fascination and admiration for British aristocracy and, and the Queen, et cetera.
1: We probably have it more than they do. But you know what is really fascinating, though, is that like, um, when actually when I was studying in Britain, you know, what struck me was the fact that they actually have public education through high, I mean, like, you know, all at that time, at least, uh, higher education was free to all their citizens. I think now they do charge like, you know, fees. But even then, they're still less expensive than say American um, college tuition, room and board and everything. It's still slightly less expensive. And of course they have the National Health Service. I mean, they have a much greater, uh, I think greater scale of public services than we do. And believe it or not, they also have a higher degree of social mobility as well, too. And I think the same goes for the, the Scandinavian countries. I mean, they have they have constitutional monarchies as well, too. And I think some of them have aristocracies. But their level of inequality is not as um, severe as ours. And I think what is interesting here, too, I think uh, it's partly the fact that our elections are so funded, are so motivated by money. I mean, when you think about the, what Citizens United, and even before that, the fact that a lot of these, I mean, a lot of these policies are just greased by all these donations. And so of course um, the 1% dominates. I mean, of course they're gonna be legislating for the rest of us. So that's how in some ways, even though we don't have hereditary monarchy, we have ended up with the same problems in that. We are still using money and property as a sort of, as a rule of thumb, as a rule of standard for, you know, legislating. Right. And I think that's why, even though they have all these hereditary monarchies and aristocracies, they have less of a problem than we do. And that's ironic.
2: Well, the the, the labor party has held power from time to time, and the principles of the labor party are specifically you know, to support the interests of people, working people. That can't be said of the Democratic Party here in the United States. You know, from time to time, it depends on uh, who's in the leadership of, of the yeah. party. Well, you know, when I think about Payne and Henry George, you know, I, uh, I, in my own writing, and I, there's a long history of how I came to this, but I, I can't go into it today. But But the term cooperative individualism was the term that I discovered through uh, hearing it from a a lecture by a historian named Paul Gaston, who talked about the founding of a utopian community in Alabama called Fairhope, based on the principles of cooperative individualism. And that immediately struck me as describing what Payne and Henry George were working for. You know, how do we create a cooperative? a uh, society, a cooperative framework for society, while still maximizing and guaranteeing individual liberty. And it seems to me that the two of them were extremely unique in their approach to achieving that that objective and outcome. And that um, I hope that our listeners to this discussion will take the time to to read your book, and then reread Rights of Man. uh, And... Also, I would certainly encourage them to read um, Henry George's main works, *Progress and Poverty*, *Social Problems*, and several others. But um, I've really enjoyed this, Francis. I've learned a great deal from your book. Uh, even more, this is probably this is we've known each other now for a good many years, and this is the I first, At least first opportunity we've really had to have a uh, one-on-one long conversation. So right. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to sit down with me and, and have this talk. And I hope it finds a wide audience and I'm sure it will. Thank so, you very
1: much. You so thanks know, I enjoyed this as much too. I appreciate the time to just discuss Thomas James. I love to do it. I feel like I rarely ever get the chance to ever discuss him and his relevance to you know, society today.
2: Well, uh, keep in contact with Ibrahim and Drum and the Henry George School and we'll hopefully take advantage of your expertise down the road.
1: I hope so too. I've, I've really enjoyed this interview.
0: And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.